Welcome to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into film, music and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is the co-founder and creative director of Acid Running, Oliver Powell. So for people who aren't familiar with you and your work as a creative director, who are you and what do you do? Hi Tom, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Oliver Powell, I'm a creative director and co-founder of Acid Running. So Acid Running is a premium men's running brand based in London um, and we launched in April of this year so it's it's early days it's, it's great to be on perfect right so before we jump into all things acid running um, generally got sort of four topics that we're going to kind of cover and the first topic is the beautiful agony of running so I'm gonna ask a very Zen question today how has running changed your life how has running changed my life uh, very good question um, I suppose in the most obvious way it's given me uh, my job so mm-hmm. Um, yeah, giving me the, the chance to have my own running brand has been incredible. Um, and yeah, I think in my personal life, I suppose, teaching me the, the power of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, acid running, we, we like to understand running more as a discipline than a sport. And I'm one of those people who I, it's something I have to admit, I never actually or very rarely look forward to a run. Oh, really? Okay. It, it's something It's something that I always feel it's something I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look forward to the clarity and um, the feeling after a run, um, mm-hmm. the feeling of accomplishment. And I look forward to those moments on the run um, where I feel a, a sense of flow or I feel like I'm processing something in my mind. Um, but yeah, there's always a, a sense of slight trepidation before right. I go out on a run, knowing that there's going to be that discomfort and knowing that it's not going to be over quickly. Um, so from that perspective, running's taught me a huge amount. Um, and I think all runners will understand that feeling of resilience that comes from pushing yourself further um, and, and going to that dark place. And you take that into every other aspect of life. And are you a runner that runs with music or without? Um, I'm someone who runs without, actually. I, I mm. like to run on my own and just allow my thoughts to wander. Um, mm. And for me, it's, it's a psychological process, predominantly. Um, I like pushing myself physically, and I think you get more psychologically from that. Mm. Um, but I feel that if I'm listening to music or if I'm listening to a podcast then the process becomes uh, a bit more mindless rather than mindful. And I know it's, it's different for everyone. Yeah. Um, a lot of people kind of scoff at me for that, the fact that I only run with no distractions. But for me, that's how I get the purest experience. It's the same for me. I don't run with music. For me, it's a meditative um, exploration, a, a mental one. I'm exactly the same. I have to process. And also I feel running gives you the opportunity to step away from external stimuli and just be with oneself. Absolutely. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with is to be kind of 
completely exposed to themselves and their own thoughts um and when you're running as well that's a kind of double whammy you're yeah. having to um be exposed to kind of your physical limits and also your mental limits at the same time which is an empowering thing mm. um but to a few people that can be quite scary yeah so just following on from that what's your running routine like at the moment and do you have an event or distance you're training for um my running um at the moment is 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 um quite casual in the sense that I'm only running every other day at the moment. I'm not doing any big distances and I'm just I'm I'm at a sort of um a lull in a nice way where I'm just letting my body dictate my running. So right. I'll I'll get up and I'll sort of see how I'm feeling and I'll either go out and do a short 5k or a 10k. Um and I'm really enjoying that actually. There's no pressure, no time pressure, no kind of PB pressure or event pressure. Um, and it's just, it, it feels like really kind of, um, kind of nice leisure running. Right. And was there a point where you were chasing a particular, a time over a particular distance? So like you were trying to get like a 30 minute, like 10 K or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I'll ever get a 30 minute 10 K, but, um, I did have that. I think when I first got into running, I was, um, quite, um, PB focused and, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say I've sort of grown out of that mentality, but I've definitely um, kind of moved through that. Um, and I, I like the sense of running without time pressure um, mm. or distance pressure. And um, I think you can kind of have a more honest experience then. And, and when you listen to your body, you know what your limits are. Um, and I think sometimes I like the idea that I've, run pbs and i don't even know it right yeah and yeah. there's that sense at the end where you go wow that felt quite special mm. uh, it might be that i didn't run a pb at all but um yeah the sense of accomplishment from allowing your mind and your body to take you as far as it can is is, is nice without those kind of the framing it within time yeah and, and i guess um well, a key part of i guess running um is the location so what are the three biggest things that make running on london's uh, city streets and its urban parks such a special experience for you yeah i think we're really lucky in london that we have amazing parks uh, to run in uh, one of my mm. favorite is um richmond park i know a few listeners will say oh no that's not that's not london that's sorry but um <laughs> uh yeah so um amazing places to run and and we're fortunate it's one of the best cities to run in but i actually prefer running along um busy streets right there's something amazing about it in the sense that you're having to concentrate in terms of avoiding pedestrians in terms of crossing the road yeah. avoiding traffic um and it's that perfect combination of being completely mindful because you're having to contra uh, concentrate but also yeah. that mindless flow state when you're kind of um in in that motion state and you you feel more relaxed and i just wanted to pick up on actually and some of the promo photos for your first collection um one of your models is next to the barbican center so and i guess like we'll get into this a bit more but is there a sense of do you gravitate towards sort of more brutalist sort of structures rather than say like as you say like parks and that kind of thing you find that more i guess more invigorating i guess yeah i think for the first collection um there was a real nice synergy between the brutalist architecture around south bank and and the collection um mm. so from a 
sort of storytelling perspective, um, the, the first collection, Voluntary Discomfort, we were really hitting on that message of the suffering involved in running. Mm. And I think that the brutalist, austere um, architecture reflects that really well right. um, about focusing on that, that one outcome and letting the outcome dictate the creation. Um, and just by nature of being based in Waterloo, so we, we did our first designs in Waterloo. That's where our first office was. Um, and it was a natural reflection of that. Mm. Um, also, the collection from an aesthetic perspective is quite cold in terms of the color, color palette. It's quite minimalist. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that brutalist architecture worked really nicely alongside it. Okay. Um, so a bit of a two-part question here. What's been your best running experience and what's been your worst? Best and worst. I mean, there's immediately two that stand out. Um, yeah, bo both in the same place, funny enough. Not at the same time, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would have been a bit of a road coaster. No, so yeah. um, both in the, in the country lanes of Somerset. So um, I was down in Somerset for a weekend and um, on a, came down from London on a Friday night, drank... Um, too much wine on the Friday night mm. and on Saturday morning went out for an early pre-breakfast run to sort of sweat out the wine and um, yeah w went to go for a 10k felt really good ended up turning it into a half marathon and um, yeah 16 kilometers in just felt an amazing runner's high with a kind of beautiful view yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm someone um, who doesn't tend to get runner's highs so mm. for me that was a, a real collector's item yeah yeah um, yeah and in terms of the worst experience in the same same country lanes uh, a couple of months ago with covid um, I didn't realize at the time I had covid I thought I was just under the weather and I went out for um, a kind of a light 10k and felt poor <laughs> felt, <laughs> didn't feel good at the start and yeah. thought I would because kind of uh, moved through it and got to about four or five K in and, and, and thought, wow, I'm really struggling here. Mm. And any, anyone listening who's had COVID will know that, that feeling of breathlessness and headache. Um, and, but because I was out in the sticks with no phone and no one nearby, the only real answer was just to run home. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and that required incredible concentration just to try and keep keep jogging at a, a low speed um just feeling like that but um yeah so that that was probably one of the lower moments of running this year i can imagine so there is a sense of running there is what a sense of fighting with oneself after a certain point of fatigue um where you're either your body gets tired or your mind sort of uh, gives up so how are you dealing with getting back to uh, a level of fitness you're used to being after after covid I mean, I was very fortunate um, in terms of, I, I, you know, I, I didn't have it badly. It was probably only a week of illness. Um, but having, I mean, over the years of running and doing other conditioning, like weight training, that sort of thing, mm. I think you can too often get um, obsessed. And I, I touched on it earlier. You can get too obsessed with um, distances run and times it takes to run the distance. And all that does is put too much pressure on you. Yeah. You know, fundamentally if you're going out there and you're having a good run and you're feeling good afterwards, that's the most important thing. And I don't think it actually matters if you're hitting certain fitness levels because there's so many other variables. Right. And that's the thing about running as a discipline. The, the discipline element means that even if you go out there and you run a slower time than you did before, it can still be a really fantastic and worthwhile run. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I agree with that 100%. I've had runs where I've it's been a crawl but it's been one of the best experiences because essentially you're out there you've got your shoes on you're plodding off you go and um 
it's just you it's just you by yourself and as i said like it's very it's very meditative and it's a way that i've used to sort of problem solve or process things as well so um yeah i think that's sort of a yeah and the interesting thing is about that you saying it's yeah. a cruel is that your definition of a cruel might be someone else's sprint anyway yeah. um so these things are all subjective and and i think the most important thing and this is the, the thing about um about acid running that we always kind of focus on is that the brand is for everyone right. um, and the garments are created for everyone. And for us, it's more about you being inspired by the garment mm -hmm. to go out there and put yourself in a, in a position of discomfort that you know is going to strengthen you mm -hmm. um, rather than chasing um, a certain preset kind of goal or expectations that maybe the sports industry would place on, on running. That's an interesting point, actually, because in preparation for this interview, I looked at this uh, running group called Tin Man Elite and they're sponsored by Adidas and they are like elite level runners um, and they sell apparel. But I'm always slightly put off by wearing a Tin Man Elite uh, branded uh, logo because the expectation that you put on yourself is to be able to run these fantastic times and if you're out there in that gear and you're not performing as such, it, it, I don't know, is it a sort of psychological thing perhaps? I don't know. Yeah, I think that, I think the word elite has um, a lot of connotations and it's something that, yeah, that we would, we would probably tend to avoid. I mean, we produce elite garments, but we frame that in terms of aesthetic, in terms of performance, um, and in terms of sustainability. Right. Um, we wouldn't frame that in terms of necessarily it being worn by an athlete. Um, and, and, you know, we're going back to that idea that, that running is, it's one of the most accessible disciplines you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, you can just go out there straight out from your, from your door and run. So it doesn't necessarily correlate that it should be an elitist discipline. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, so growing up, can you remember the first ever item of sports where you bought with your own money and how did it make you feel? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's a, a, a sort of, a, a sportswear piece that ever really kind of moved or excited me and, and mm. that might be one of the reasons you know going back to why we created acid running in the first place i think for me my love of clothing started with tailoring and streetwear and, and and luxury fashion right um before it did um sort of sports apparel mm -hmm. and i think for um your listeners who are into their fashion they'll recognize that feeling of when you pick up sports apparel it just doesn't compare. Right. So it will have that sheen to it that kind of um, traditional polyester will have. It's sticky when you wear it and you start to sweat. Um, it clings to your body and it smells terribly. Right. <laughs> so for us, it was about actually creating garments that could solve that problem. Something that you could wear outside of running. Something you could wear afterwards to the cafe, yeah. to the pub. Um, something that wouldn't smell immediately. So for us, it was taking the inspiration actually from outside of sports okay. and bringing it into that performance, um, that performance arena. And um, yeah, so I, I think maybe having not been inspired by sportswear was the inspiration for, for launching Acid Running. And could you just pick out a few brands perhaps growing up that you identified more with than I guess like luxury brands or streetwear brands? Yeah, so um, I think in the streetwear side of things, um, Stone Island is something, a brand that's really interested yeah, me in the yeah. terms of them having that performance element mm -hmm. in terms of outerwear, but also having that, um, that streetwear side. Um, Arcteryx are a brand that, I mean, they're a massive hype brand at the moment, but again, starting off from a performance angle. Um, 
I've always liked um, some of the more kind of understated um, brands like APC, yeah. Acne. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know I I think from from my perspective as well I've I come from a family where we've got a heritage on in the tailoring side yeah um so I've always been interested in the storytelling behind fashion as well I think tailoring in particular has a storytelling element and that's something that we wanted to integrate into um into acid running so I just want to pick up a little bit about Stone Island just as a sort of um uh, tangent it's basically it was founded by an Italian guy who based on I believe you might know this better than I would who was designing military wear and there's a follow on company called CP which is a lot more utilitarian it's construction which people aren't so um, it's not so known about and I guess in this country and maybe you can sort of speak to this a little bit Stony has a very particular I guess like reputation of like casual movement like football terraces and things like that but it, it gets lost the fact it actually was military wear first and foremost I think the guy who was designing it. Yeah, I, I mean, we've now we've lost half our audience now by talking about Stone <laughs> Island. But, um, but um, yeah, so but I think that's anything. Any brand that um, cuts through the noise is always going to have um, some sort of spin off in terms of negative or positive reputation. Right. I think, you know, a brand, a classically English brand would be Burberry. Um, yeah. And again, there's similar implications with what Burberry became, let's say, in the 90s. Um, and then also their kind of um, rebranding to a more international audience, that sort of thing. So all those big brands that have 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 made a real kind of um, a standing in mm. the scene will always get those implications. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting about the fact that it was kind of military spec, and and again, people people I suppose don't necessarily know that storyline, but there's kind of that assumed element that it's higher quality because there's being the design element and, yeah. and the performance element that's gone into it. Mm -hmm. um, so just of taking a break from the sort of clothing angle of, of our conversation, I just want to jump into um, topic two, which is the business of fashion. Now, I understand back in 2013, you graduated from the University of Birmingham with a BSc in political economy, first class honours, and you worked as a political consultant. How did that educational experience and working environment teach you about business and people? Um, not a huge amount, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Um, yeah, so I, I studied um, political economy at uni and uh, yeah, and it was natural for me to kind of work in that industry afterwards. So I spent a few years as a political consultant in the sort of grubby art of um, lobbying. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, without being facetious, I've probably learned more this week than I did in, in three years of university and three years of, of working in the political sphere. Yeah. And I think that's just, that's not to say that those are like um, really intense environments um, and challenging environments, but I think it's just the amount you're exposed to. Right. So, you know, this week we've been dealing with um, kind of the financial elements of the business, um, dealing with marketing strategy, dealing with garment design, we're in the middle of a uh, intellectual property, dis uh, property dispute with um, one of the biggest clothing brands in the world. And, okay. Um, <laughs> maybe that we'll do another episode on that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Um, so those are all um, difficult, daunting um, things that you're kind of exposed to all the time. And you, mm. you don't really have a, a choice rather than to kind of learn and adapt or die. Um, yeah. and, and you can't replicate that in, in, in a kind of political sphere. Right. So just sort of jumping back to that a little bit, 
you're doing obviously your passion wasn't in political consulting i'm assuming at the time you had different um, ambitions but what initially sort of drew you to that particular sort of profession and then how did you kind of like move away f from that while you were i guess like in it i think um Maybe growing up, I wasn't someone who showed uh, creative potential right. um, or creative skills. I wasn't someone who I, I'm still not someone who is necessarily good at um, sort of drawing or um, that kind of like pure artistic form. Right. So it felt natural to me that I would just follow something that I'd shown academic strength and interest in. Mm. Um, and I think maybe there was an element of um, I didn't feel like I was the sort of person who should be in, in a creative sphere for that reason. Okay. So I was a consumer, you know, I was a customer, I, I, I loved clothing, I was always interested in fashion and I kind of go back to that thing, I'm fascinated by storytelling Yeah. and um, I, I love the way that kind of um, fashion is, is an element of storytelling and, yeah. and I, I started to realise that, you know, if, if I'm a, a storyteller in politics, why can I be a storyteller in, in, in fashion? Right. And um, maybe I was kind of surviving by being a storyteller <laughs> without being an expert there. And I thought, where can I go where, um, yeah, where that kind of, um, that, that creative expression is going to be more valuable. Okay. So how did you make the professional transition from working as a political consultant in 2017 to becoming head buyer at the premium sportswear shop the active collection in 2019 and was there any backlash from family and friends from this career change no i mean there wasn't any i mean there wasn't any backlash per se i think there was an element of confusion okay. <laughs> people why would you be leave, leaving a secure profession somewhere mm. where you're having success to go and do something where you have no expertise and background and is also going to be really tough right. and, and um, you're going to have to kind of start from scratch all over again um, so yeah that they were probably nervous for me um, I was nervous for myself but um, the the pull to do it was too strong right. I couldn't ignore it um, and actually someone said to me a couple of days ago they were like I can't believe I can't think of a time before you doing this. Right, right. And it's weird to think of you in that profession now, mm. um, which was actually quite nice to hear. So, yeah, I think trepidation, but fundamentally, you, you, when people are passionate about something, then you just have to support them doing it. Right. And, and what do you think gave you that confidence to go like, right, I'm going to put away this stable like career and like, jump into the complete unknown? Um, good question. <laughs> Did I have confidence doing it? I mean, I just... I, 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 I mean, we have this. We have a saying, "Acid," actually, and and it's uh, it's it's an old quote, but we've we've woven it into into the the website and social media as well. That you you know you've always got um, you've got sort of two pains mm. to choose from as a human, which is either the, the pain of self discipline or the or the pain of regret. Right. And I always think the pain of regret is is um, much fiercer than any other pain. So I knew that if I didn't take that plunge and if I didn't try it, then I would regret it forever. Uh, okay. Um, and I guess just following on from that question, I guess it relates to what we spoke to sort of previously a little bit before, that you relaunched the London-based luxury brand Tectopel, which was started by your great-great-grandfather, I believe, in like 1908. And you did that in 2018. So could you briefly go through the major steps you took from day zero, creating a business plan to buying stock to relaunching the brand for our listeners? Just to have an idea. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have a business plan per se. I suppose... I just had a sense of the story 
um, not just the story of the brand as it was. So just to give a little bit of background, yeah, it was an old um, tailoring firm started in 1908 in Bishopsgate by my um, great grandfather and his two brothers. And they, um, interesting at talking about Stone Island and military side of things. So they, mm. they were tailors and then um, they served in the First World War. And when they came back from the First World War, they noticed that um, the boxy suits, people in London tended to wear boxy city suits. Mm. And um, they noticed that the officers' uniforms were a completely different cut and uh, to be more athletic. Right, um, right. So the military officers' uniforms. And they noticed that they were getting a better response from um, wives, girlfriends and lovers back home <laughs> than the traditional city suit. Right. So they had the kind of genius idea to replicate that more athletic cut into suit tailoring. Um, and yeah, they grew that business and it ended up um, being sold to Burberry in the 70s and yeah. was a, was a label of Burberry until the end of the 90s. So yeah, I didn't have a business plan, but I did have to negotiate a few confusing things, which there's there's a there's um for heritage brands like that um there are some dubious people who go out and they try and hoover up all the um intellectual property so right. hoover up the trademark the domain names the instagram handles mm -hmm. so kind of unpicking all that was right. was was quite confusing um and getting the trademark back and that sort of thing um, but I kind of just launched into it and I, and I, I went head first with the knowledge that I'd make mistakes right. and I just wanted to make those mistakes as, as quickly as possible to start working out what I really should be doing. Yeah. And so in terms of that, what were the first sort of items or pieces that you were selling typically? So it started off with, um, men's silk accessories. So I kind of lent into that tailoring side of things and did, um, yeah, made in England, um, luxury silk ties and pocket squares. Right. Um, I really wanted to start with the first um, products I, I designed and created. I wanted them to be kind of the pinnacle of luxury. Okay. And I felt that would reflect the brand values really well. Um, and it was also something I felt I could do. I had a sense of what I wanted the ties to be like. Um, and I knew that there was a, um, a mill in, in the north of England that I could use okay, to yeah. kind of achieve that, that world-class level. So it was natural for me to do that. Um, and I ended up pivoting the brand um, more towards women's wear. So okay, our, yeah. our hero products now are, um, yeah, trench coats, um, cashmere scarves, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so why do you think luxury fashion and premium sports are important to the average customer? Um, yeah, I think... There's something about luxury fashion that, um, and it doesn't even have to be real luxury, but something about nice clothing yeah. um, and nice uh, brands um, that kind of elevates that consumer experience that, that nothing else does. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at every other kind of creative industry, um, be it cinema, music, literature, film, the the consumer is always a member of the audience and they're right. leaning in and they're watching a story um, or they're trying to understand a story in, in, in kind of the context of art. And clothing is the only one where, where you wear it, you're part of that story as well. It's either right. a story created by the brand or it's a story you create for yourself, but you're the main character and you're the hero of the story. And I just think that's an incredibly powerful thing. Um, so that the... the essentially the brand creates something purely for that consumer um and to elevate them and it's it's an amazing thing you know you can you can if if you're the um 
best dressed person in the room you're yeah. the coolest person in the room it's as simple as that and you know it doesn't matter who's got the the most money the biggest house the best car or even you know the best looking right the best dressed person in the room is the coolest and we all have access to that okay and yeah. i think that's a really powerful thing that is interesting and i always assume fashion for me takes a form of like physical architecture that's the way I sort of think of it as, as these sort of pieces are like constructed and then we are like the, the shell or whatever that's wearing these pieces of very designed sort of almost building-esque um, uh, clothing, I guess, because in terms of like the cut and, and obviously the proportions of it all sort of feed into that. And it's interesting you talk about like the story because essentially for me, I'm, I'm not, I mean, you can tell the way I'm dressed, I'm not hugely into sort of like luxury uh, fashion, but what intrigues me about like brands like uh, uh, Rick Owens per se is the materials and the fundamental story and the actual aesthetic approach to the to the creation of those garments. That's what interests me in a sense, rather than somebody's got a Louis belt on in, in a club and with a <laughs> t-shirt tucked in so everybody can kind of sort of see it. So there's a sense of, sort of peacocking and then there is a sense of people exploring materials and fashion and figure and form in a more uh, artistic way, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's interesting about the, the architecture, as you said, and that's something that's gone in a lot into the, the design work for Acid Running. Yeah. So again, for us, the, the classic sportswear silhouette was not something that appealed to us. Mm. So we wanted a more relaxed, casual silhouette, something that would replicate what you would see in, in streetwear or right. casual wear. Um, and it's just something that's... Um, it, it's it's a it's a kind of a look that you can place in any other context as well right um and it's yeah it's a kind of it's a, it's a positive aesthetic that um that, that people look good in and it's as simple as that as well we want the garments to perform well but we yeah. want you to look and feel good in them as well and there is an element of aspiration to luxury fashion, which I think also is important in a sense, because a lot of times you can look at the expense and maybe the fast fashion nature of it, but it is important to, if you've achieved something, then show your achievement uh, by the clothes that you, you wear in a sense. And I guess that does give you a sense of uh, confidence, I should, I should say. Um, so just in the aftermath of the pandemic, sales of sports equipment and sportswear have exploded. So Nike, Adidas and Puma have made record profits. But what's one major thing major sporting companies get wrong, in your opinion? And how would you go about fixing that? Um, good question. Um, I, looking at the kind of like big multi-sport multi, um, brands, um, the like global brands, I don't necessarily look to them as right. kind of inspiration or competitors. But mm. it's interesting to see something that, that they and a lot of the big brands have kind of been accused of recently, which is greenwashing. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm more shocked by that now, having been in the industry for a few years than before. And, and the simple reason being that it's, it's not as hard as, as I think the consumer realizes to weave or improve your sustainability. Right. Um, so, you know, my first time doing um, performance apparel with the, the first acid running collection, and it was always our goal to be as sustainable as possible. Mm -hmm. But coming from a, a kind of a position of humility, we knew that was going to be a massive challenge yeah. because, because, because we were new and we were thinking, right, how can we create a framework where we can... Um, increase our margins or increase our funding or increase our research so that we can get to a position of, of like full sustainability. Right. But we'll work towards that because we have that element of ignorance where we haven't produced a collection like that before. Mm. But I found it 
easier than I thought right. to kind of create um, sustainable garments, more sustainable than, than most garments you get out there in, in the market, which for me was shocking. It was essentially just a question of us in many ways spending more, spending more right. on sustainable fabrics, um, spending more to work with a more sustainable factory. Um, so for, for that was a real eye-opener in the sense that we weren't closed off from being sustainable by not having huge resources. Right. But people are actively choosing to be to be unsustainable for tiny, tiny profit margins. Okay. That obviously, they're scaling out on a yeah. huge way, but the, the moral burden is, is massively on those brands. And just for the audience, could you just unpack what greenwashing is for them in case they don't know? Yeah, so I suppose it's a bit of an umbrella term, and, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it, but it's the sense of um, creating the perspective of sustainability um, either where it doesn't exist at all Hmm. or where it exists in um, isolated incidents so what a a lot of the big fast fashion brands will do is they will um, they'll create a sense of sustainability by working with well-known celebrities who are either kind of sustainably um, public positioned or talk a lot about sustainability and to create that sense that they're, they're ethical. And then they'll mm. also create little capsule collections or one-off products, which will be sustainable. And they'll really ramp that up with the imagery and the marketing around it, where fundamentally that's uh, tip of the iceberg. And, right. and they're not doing that to make their business more sustainable. They're just doing that to create um, a sense of sustainability or to capture um, new markets. So, so the illusion is the tip of the spear in a sense. Um, something draws me to mind was uh, Nike did a collection. I think it was like Tom Sachs. I think the guy's name is. Um, and all his stuff was um, recycled. All the shoes were basically recycled from bottles and the, the soles were like cork and that sort of stuff. And it looks very impressive. But Nike, I think, produces over if no, 6,000, 10,000 um, shoe models that's just shoe models in itself not the amount of shoes that they kind of create so if you've got a very small proportion of your business that's renewable but the rest of it is as you say like fast fashion and isn't isn't renewable but for all intents and purposes you're only going to see what they choose the very you know the tip of the iceberg what they choose to put out there yeah and then the sad thing is i think and we all think of running as a net positive discipline mm. because we know that it's accessible we know um, that we can literally just go out of our doors. We don't necessarily even need to travel to run. Yeah. And that sense of positivity that comes through it. So we have a natural bias as runners yeah. towards running, but running is is incredibly bad for the environment. Mm. And, and so for us as a new running brand, I'd say that's a bigger responsibility for us in, a, in many ways than, than the other incumbents because yeah. we're the ones who are adding more demand and and more garments out there so i think we have to have higher standards the most right and where do you think that comes from because i think this is definitely a generational thing that perhaps if you were doing this 20 years ago that just wouldn't have been like a consideration um so how did you what made you aware of like sustainability in the first place and why do you gravitate towards more than that than obviously huge profit margins yeah no i think um it's 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 something we've kind of discussed a lot because i i wouldn't say any of us in the team are real um evangelists um in terms of the environment and sustainability we're we're kind of we're humble in the sense that we don't think we're experts um and for us sustainability should be a starting point and should be something achieved for by default right um i i think that you know a lot of the kind of bioscience behind it is very complex um 
and it's something that we're trying to educate ourselves on but fundamentally yeah you know we've launched a brand in 2022 yeah and and what we would hate is to have success and for that to be tinged with regret right that we've done it in a negative way and we've mm-hmm. made the world a worse place <laughs> i mean that wouldn't be much of a success to have, have built a brand and then to know that we're kind of burdening the environment right so just to jump into topic three acid running so we can get deep in the weeds here so essentially what was that creative spark that made you and your business partners alexander and max want to start acid running back in 2021 and what were those initial conversations like were they very receptive was this something that was bubbling away and you're like well you have to do this yeah it was something that was bubbling away in me for a bit but i think i mean the process of getting there. So the three of us worked together um, with an, with another company we own called um, the Active Collection, which was a um, an online retailer for luxury running and cycling brands. Oh, so you owned that? That's one that you owned. That was that was the three of us. Yeah. Okay. So we were working on that together, um, and I was responsible for the buying side, so bringing new brands on. And I I was a runner, so I had a natural bias towards running. Yeah. But um, cycling was easier in the sense that it was much much easier to identify new cycling brands, to identify cycling brands with um, a really rich uh, brand personality, with a really strong aesthetic, with an edge to them. Yeah. And on the running side, I was really struggling. I mean, we found a nice selection of little running brands and yeah. we had them on site and but it was genuinely hard work to try and find new running brands. Yeah. And we felt that there was something missing. Um I think from our perspective as runners, um we felt that, you know, that there's something incredibly unique about running in the sense that um you know that that, that there's as much suffering as there is satisfaction. Um, as much pleasure as there is discomfort there's that amazing duality in running Mm -hmm. and there was nothing really talking about that it was all about talking to you as an athlete or talking to you and only framing it in the sense of the pleasure and the runner's high yeah and we were like where's that dark edge right right, and 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 there's this perception outside of running and it's changed massively but you know the perception of of running as being um, a bit eccentric or, or whatever, mm. and 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 that's a that's an unfair portrayal, because running is running's really tough and is dark, and that gives it an amazing edge and it's yeah, cool. Yeah. So we felt that was missing. Um, so we got to the point where we thought, well, if no one else is going to do it, we're going to have to do it. Um, so we yeah we sold the active collection to fund the first acid running collection. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's how we got there. Um, and so obviously on your, your website, the Stratburn reads for the pursuit of suffering, which is appropriate given how ultra competitive the sportswear industry is. And we've spoken about this like a little bit, um, but how do you as a company go about creating a competitive edge in a marketplace? And I also want to sort of draw upon another running company that was started in 2015, which is Saw Running, which is founded in Hackney, which is founded by, uh, I think it's an, archi- was it an architect or a designer plus runner. Um, Maybe it's an unfair comparison to compare these sort of two things, but how is your competition or a form of competition against your company? How do you um, compete against something like that? Yeah, I mean, we don't really look um, at competitors too much, really. I think you can get bogged down that. We've got a really um, strong vision for what acid running is and and what we want to do. And any of Mm. your listeners will see that immediately when they go on the website. It's an aesthetic that you won't have seen before in running um, in terms of that that casual silhouette, that street style edge, um, and that kind of darker imagery. So 
yeah, I don't think we kind of look in terms of competitive edge and competitors. We just do our own thing and we do it with conviction. Okay. Um, I, you know, Saw's a really interesting brand and I don't think they we would see Saw as a competitor. They probably wouldn't see us as a competitor. Right. Um, and, and that's mainly because, I suppose, of their conviction to performance and elite running. Right. So um, you'll see maybe at the front of an elite marathon race, you'll see some people wearing Saw. So Saw has been, um, yeah, it's a really, really good brand where everything's been designed for um, reducing every split second from your personal best. And I think right. they're doing a fantastic job at that. Yeah. Our uh, mantra and our approach to, to running is very different. I mean, it, as you say, our tagline is for the pursuit of suffering and, and theirs would probably be, you know, for the pursuit of PBs. <laughs> so those are two very different yeah, yeah, things. Very true, um, yeah. And yeah. yeah, we would, our garments are world-class in terms of the performance elements, but we would willingly sacrifice a split second off your 5k time to make you look better right okay okay that's fair um so from the point of view of a creative director can you talk a little bit about the process of designing testing and making collection 001 voluntary discomforts running shorts from scratch because people may not know what that process is like yeah so it was it was a long process um because it was our first collection so yep took took over a year and it was it was kind of hard and easy at the same time in the sense that because we set such high standards, we wanted our our first collection to be world-class immediately. We wanted it to be um, luxury. We wanted it to be different to what people had seen before. Um, so that meant there was a high design burden and right. a high technical burden on the process. But at the same time, because we had a really clear vision, it made that process a, a lot easier. We were in control of the process. We weren't letting the garments and the fabrics dictate okay the outcome we we were kind of doing that so in terms of uh, for listeners who, who haven't um experienced something like that before you're kind of looking at it from um kind of three main avenues um so looking at it from a fabric perspective so sourcing fabrics um looking at it from an aesthetic perspective and we have a specific designer who works on that just to make sure the aesthetic is as is as kind of um as good as it can be um, and kind of really striking in terms of having that acid running handwriting all the way through. Yeah. And then from the kind of garment performance perspective, and we have a product developer who works um, on, on that and, and that's her kind of primary role. Right. Um, and it's kind of a dance between all three. Yeah. And, and occasionally there are some compromises on one element, but um, yeah, fundamentally everything came out, which sort of ticked all three boxes in a, in a, like, in a really pleasing way. So... You've designed it. You've got your. Um, you've designed it. You've got your fabrics. You've had them. You've had a mock-up made. Who gets to put on the, sh the shorts for the first time and go for a run in the business? Yeah. So um, I. I'm not allowed to do that immediately. So when you have, um, you know, again, some people know this, but but others won't. So when you get your samples back from the factory. Um, you need them to be worn by a specific um, size model. Okay. So, for example, if we're getting a medium, we would want uh, a medium size model um, to wear that for us. Um, so we share a medium size model with Burberry, which is a funny. Oh, okay. Interesting. Like there's yeah, the yeah. sort of family weird family connection coming yeah. back in, but um, and um, so yeah, so he comes in and models for us. And at the beginning, we're looking at the fit primarily so how that feels on the model um how that fits and also the silhouette's really important yeah so we have that first element and then only then 
do I get the joy of actually running in the shorts um, and kind of testing them from a performance perspective and obviously those additional um, aesthetic elements um, and fit elements that come from actually um, going for a run in the shorts. So how do you relay? Because obviously wearing a piece of like clothing in terms of how we feel is very unique to us and our uh, body. So how do you actually go about relaying any sort of notes you have on a pair of shorts back to the design team because it is a very individual experience you're trying to make universal yeah i don't think it's yeah it's there's nothing there's no science to it per se um you describe that to the product developer and the product developer relays that back to the factory and we talk that through with the factory and i think yeah the best way of doing it is just to have that kind of open conversation and i think the one thing i feel really fortunate about in all of this process is that i'm not burdened necessarily with too much of the kind of technical orthodoxy right i can say this feels x y and z and then maybe i'm not always using the right terminology but i'm going to convey that in the kind of most authentic way possible and if i see something and i say that looks and i'm you know i won't swear i'm like but that looks like that then it goes back to the drawing board and it's not it's not a question of um, yeah, it, it just allows us to be really clear and, and we communicate really directly with um, our factory. We'll just jump on a call mm. um, and kind of work through it as a team. And something I just want to pick up on uh, quickly with you is the mood board. So on your IG, you posted Full Stop by John Latham, who is a British uh, contemporary artist who was born in 1921 and died in, in 2006. So how does that sort of feed into the brand and how does that inspire you when you're talking about making these items of clothing yeah i think i mean yes for for um listeners who go on our um our instagram you'll see quite a bit of abstract art on there um i think it's just a way of telling that full story in a really kind of um in a creative but in like a full way so that abstract art is inspiration for us in terms of our storytelling around the brand um, but also we're looking for synergies and overlaps between what's going on in other creative spheres and what's going on in our own. Yeah. Um, I just like that one in particular. I thought it was really powerful. The idea, um, you know, the kind of contested idea of where things begin and where things end. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting thing about when you're in a run is that there's that sense that you're halfway through something or you might be coming to the end of it. But there's also that sense of timelessness that comes when you like enter a flow state or you're having that really engaging run um, where kind of, yeah, time kind of exits the picture altogether. And just finally, you're part of a group of young entrepreneurs uh, building and running a business in London in the face of England's biggest cost of living crisis in 40 years. If you had five minutes alone with the UK business secretary, what would you say to him? Um, who is the business secretary? Right? See, that's the thing. When I wrote this, I left it. I left it open ended because I don't new know. Today, it surely, is. yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I don't know. Um, but I mean, from that perspective, in terms of young entrepreneurs, young creatives, I, I would want to. I go knock on the door of the housing minister because uh, I think that's a uh, uh, that's a worse situation. Um, London needs creatives. London needs entrepreneurs. It's been built on that. Of course, yeah. there's um, there's finance, there's there's legal, there's the kind of diplomatic and political side. But fundamentally, what gives London its colour is the the creatives and the and, and the entrepreneurs. And I think the sad thing is that people are being priced out of being within London and are being mm. moved to the periphery. And everyone who understands like the creative space knows that there's a time lag 
when you're creative. It could take you five to 15 years to reach a point where you can monetize yeah. your creative output. It can take that long to refine your creative output to a point where it's either commercial or it's cut through or you have um, an audience for it. And But in that time, in terms of the, the cost of living crisis and the housing crisis, people who are in those creative spheres either can't afford to be within the center of London being part of the discussion or they're having to subsidize their creative energies with another role and, and actually all that's going to do is undermine their creativity yeah. because it's literally sapping away from it. So I would say it's it's one of those things where you won't notice it's gone until it's gone. Right. Um, and um, we can't just have a, um, a kind of zones one and two populated by the highest paid people in the country yeah um and by kind of international business there has to be young british entrepreneurs and creatives as part of that um culture as well and just of touching on that um we spoke briefly outside that you'd actually recently moved from waterloo to borough could you just talk about the benefits of moving to a space which is uniquely your own in terms of the creative side of things yeah i mean we were talking about this briefly before we came on air which was um I think it just it's just amazing to have that own creative space and I think um any just simple stuff from um kind of playing music or being able to kind of be a little bit louder having open discussions yeah. not having to um kind of frame when and where meetings happen just be able to kind of discuss things freely and, and work through things freely it's just yes yeah, it's, it's it's a real luxury and you really can't put a price on that. That's something that's not, you can't budget for that communication and that level of freedom. Um, there is no, <laughs> there is no level of money that you can, or that you can kind of like spend that gets you that communication. It's sort of an intangible, but essential to the business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's why we try and keep everything as like collaborative and in person as, as we can. So I just want to quickly move on to topic four, which is the future of running. So I want to get you a few sort of hot takes about running and, and running associated items. So on October the 12th, 2019, Alip Kipchoge became the first athlete to run a marathon, 26.2 miles in one hour and 59 minutes, saying afterwards, this shows no one is limited. What do you think of achievement of a, uh, what do you think of an achievement of that magnitude? Um, how, does that, how does that achievement of that magnitude change the sport of running in your mind? I don't know if it changes changes it um, fundamentally. I mean, it's an incredible achievement, of course. Um, but I do like, um, I like the expression he used at the end in terms of, you know, no one is limited. Um, yeah. Because for him, his, his, his one hour 59 might be for one person just going out and running for 10 minutes consecutively. Yeah. For someone else, it might be going on their first run. For someone else, it might be working through um, some demons in the head by, by kind of through running. Um, and, and kind of for everyone, that pinnacle is different. Um, so yeah, I don't think, I don't think it necessarily changes the face of running at all. I think that's mm. what I love about running is it's all personal battles, um, and kind of everything we have is already with, within us. Okay, and just following on from that question, there was a lot of controversy around Kipchoge's prototype Nike Vaporfly running shoes after the race. What do you think about technology doping in sports? Um, so yeah, I mean. From a competitive uh, performance perspective, I think, you know, th that's just something for the regulators and that side of thing. But, I, f you know, for me, if, if, if the technology enhances your experience of running, then fantastic. I know you mentioned at the start you find running as, as a kind of meditative process. Mm. 
if technology can enhance that meditative process for some people that's listening to music not for me <laughs> but for other people that's listening to music yeah if you can you know use technology to enhance that experience and get to that kind of flow state easier yeah um then fantastic each to their own and I also think that isn't it part of just the development of sports like tennis rackets, swimsuits, that these are the things that make... Because essentially it's the human that's interacting with this object, not the object interacting with the human. Um, so I, when, I, when people talk about the controversy of having these super fast sort of shoes, it's based on the athlete. And Kipchoge is an insane, insane level athlete. So um, the competitive advantage he gets from that will be different from somebody else. Um, so I'm for like pushing the limits of technology and the human body. I, I don't necessarily buy this idea of it's technology doping. The only thing where it becomes an issue is when people don't have open access to that technology, where it becomes an elite form of technology where only few people actually have access to it. Yeah. Um, so, okay, looking forward to the next five to 10 years, what do you think are going to be, what do you think is going to be the biggest game changer in terms of the production of sports fabrics and running apparel? So I think I'm hoping the moves towards sustainability. Um, I think that the demand from younger demographics for uh, more sustainable garments is going to hopefully reach the boardrooms of some yeah. of these these some of these big companies. Um, and I think just fundamentally looking at a, a kind of a bottom up um, design process. So instead of trying to replicate. Um, the highest end performance apparel, which almost all of it is unsustainable. Yeah, People look elsewhere for their inspiration. So for us, it's a question of looking towards um, other styles and relating them back to running apparel rather than looking at what Olympic athletes are wearing and watering it down for an everyday runner. And I just want to throw out a very left field question here. What do you think about uh, running clothing made from algae? Because that's a lot more environmentally friendly than cotton and bamboo. Is that something that you've had any sort of uh, periphery experience with or heard about? Yeah, it's something we've been looking at. Um, and we've kind of been researching as much as we can around um, all kind of natural fibers. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll be kind of right at the um at kind of the edge of, of of sustainability in the years to come and where do you go looking for that kind of advanced tech that's sort of over the horizon that isn't ready available what, what sort of places do you do you do you kind of like investigate so fortunately we work with a incredible um fabric mill right. um so they're really at the cutting edge of technology and research so we're fortunate enough to um, have a, a, a decent level of insight into okay. these um, uh, advancements. Um, but yeah, it's again, it comes back from that position of just being humble and trying to educate ourselves and seeing I what's see. going on and, and, and kind of always be at the bastion of, of kind of what's the future of running apparel. Okay, so uh, I think I know what the answer to this one is going to be, but what do you think of um, Web 3.0 applications and collectibles like AR running apps, NFT trainers and fitness coins? Do you think that will change the running industry? <laughs> what did you think I was going to say? <laughs> well, I think as somebody who doesn't like myself, doesn't like to run with music, I feel it's getting in the way of the purity of the running experience. Having an AR running app that's giving me like a line or zombies are running at me or um, NFT trainers or sweat coins for that matter just seems to be an obstruction rather than an well, a benefit to me per se. Yeah, no, and, and I, I get that. And uh, I think... Um, that whole space of web web three has incredible potential of anything any technology has potential to do good i agree in the sense that 
for me, a lot of what I've seen um, so far from uh, clothing brands and in fashion has been fairly, um, yeah, underwhelming in terms of yeah. NFTs. I, I, I don't see the value of an NFT pair of trainers <laughs> at this stage. Yeah. Um, for us, if we were going to do um, something um, in, in Web3, then we would want it to really elevate the experience for our runners we'd want to add something um and to really bring them inside of yeah. acid running um and actually kind of invite them inside and give them something that we couldn't give other consumers um so yeah we're, we're absolutely looking to see um what we can do in that space but we'd want it to be really unique and we'd want it to feel acid running we wouldn't just do it um to jump on the bandwagon and finally what is your dream project if money and time wasn't an object? I'm going to be sentimental here and say I'd be doing exactly the same thing. Okay. Um, yeah, if, if uh, money and time weren't an object, I'd be working on acid running today. Yeah, 100%. And is there a particular garment, uh, shoe or hat or something that you've got a dream piece of apparel that you're itching to sort of design, but you're not quite there in terms of like technology or design or, or whatever it is? Yeah, something I'm really looking forward to doing next year actually is um, is running vests. So um, to begin with, we designed a collection for ourselves really as um, kind of style obsessed runners. It was quite straightforward to create something really striking that we knew we'd want to wear. Um, but now that we've got this growing audience of runners um, who are kind of defining what acid running is and defining where we go we've got to the stage where even though i don't wear running vests to run yeah the kind of weight of expectation means that i'm i'm now creating one um so I, i'm i'm really excited about that because that will be the first time that cr we create something where we'll have the audience defining its success rather than our own eye and lastly, where can people check out and buy Acid Running Clothing and follow you on social media? So, yeah, we're on Instagram um, at Acid Running. And then, yeah, just Google Acid Running and you'll find our website, www.acid-running.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Oliver. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Thanks.